It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bits and Pieces podcast for November 2022. And a special welcome to any of our Mastodon followers. We've joined Mastodon.scot. It's a lovely server. We're really enjoying it. Nice community kind of feel and not run by billionaires. Well, compared to the last two months, this has actually been quite quiet politically. We've still got the same prime minister as last month. We've still got the same chancellor. We've still got the same monarch. One thing's new, though, and that is Scotland has been confirmed to be less than a colony in its standing within the UK. Thanks to the judgment of the Supreme Court, they said that they didn't consider us to be a colony because of all that democracy we've got, but we're not allowed to use the democracy unless Westminster gives us permission. And because we're not a colony, we have no right of access to the International Court of Justice to assert our right to self-determination. So it appears that our rights are actually less than those that we would have if we were a colony. So if we were in any doubt, know your place, Scotland. Obviously, we're not going to take this lying down. Both Marlene and I were at the Edinburgh and Glasgow demos on the Day of the Judgment. We're not going to cover that in this podcast because we're planning on doing a court case special as a separate podcast. So you can look out for that. This month, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. We'll focus in on the Opposition Day debate, which was a six and a half hours extravaganza led by the SNP on the topic of can Scotland afford to remain part of the Union? So let's start off with what I thought was a great speech from Stuart Hosey, responding to a cliche-filled opener by the Secretary of State against Scotland. We had the Secretary of State for Scotland... Uh, talking about funding delivered by the UK government. Indeed, the honourable gentleman, the member for Bamford Buchan, spoke about a number of other UK policy decisions and certainly read out the cost of them. I thought it was interesting, though, because it was almost like it was discretionary largesse from Whitehall, almost ignoring the fact that Scottish individuals and businesses don't pay tax. It's almost as if they don't realise almost every penny is borrowed, and the Scottish taxpayers contribute their full share to the debt repayment costs. And I find this extraordinary. And we heard other talk during the day about a debt and the debt Scotland might have. The Scottish Government cannot borrow. It has no debt. All of the debt comes from the UK. The UK borrows all the money no matter where it is spent. Whether it's a £500 million overspend on a single tube station, we pay our share of that debt. The reason I mention this, there is no union dividend. We then heard the Secretary of State make some extraordinarily disparaging remarks about education. Scotland has the highest proportion of people with a tertiary education. The best educated country in Europe. Instead of talking it down, why don't we celebrate the pupils and the students, the teachers and the lecturers, the schools and the colleges and the universities? The best educated country in Europe. He then went on, he must have been having a really bad day, to talk about crime. We've got the lowest car. He's coming. Welcome, Governor General. Take your seat. <laughs> Scotland, Scotland has the lowest crime rate since 1974. Yeah. In England, it was reported in the last week. Barely 5% of reported crimes in England even have somebody charged. To talk down the criminal justice system in Scotland while allowing that utter failure of the criminal justice system in England to go by the book is absolutely disgraceful. We then had the bizarre, the bizarre sight of the Better Together parties, the Tory Labour coalition parties, (coughs) pretending to dislike each other. (coughs) When I see Labour's (laughs) immigration mugs and their make Brexit work slogans, All I see is a red Tory. Red Tory, blue Tory, doesn't matter. They're exactly the same. We then had, we then had, I might not even get to my speech proper, Madam Deputy Speaker. (laughs) We then had some 
straw men thrown up about how much Scotland's foreign currency reserve would have to be when we become independent. I, I checked. I, I, I checked, actually. The UK's foreign currency reserve is 6.4% of GDP. Ireland's is 27 yeah, yeah. Finland's is 7%. Now, to be fair, Denmark is higher at around 20%, to be fair. How can it possibly be that a modern advanced economy with huge natural resources and a balance of trade surplus like Scotland would somehow uniquely be expected to be holding 50, 60, I think you spoke enough earlier on. <laughs> 50, 60, 70, 80 percent of GDP in foreign countries. Of course, I'll, of course, I'll give way to my, of course, I'll give, of course, I'll give way to my right honourable friend. I'm very, very grateful to my honourable friend, and I'll see you later. But can I? Um, he's making a, a very powerful speech, but it's probably worth pointing out to the House that the UK has a current account deficit of more than 8% of GDP. Yeah. If it's a country that can't pay its way, it's the UK. Yeah. This is absolutely true. You know, there will come a time, there will come a time when we have the referendum next year, when we can enter into proper and calmer, sensible debates looking at the minutiae and the technical detail regarding all this, and long may that continue. Basically, what we saw today, Madam Deputy Speaker, was a rerun of Project Fear. Yep. Project Fear 2. Uh, and before I, I do move on very briefly to what I had prepared, I, I was struck by the comments from the honourable gentleman, the member for Chesterfield, who is also no longer in his place. At one, point, at one point, he genuinely seemed to suggest that the determination as to whether or not Scotland should have a referendum should be based on opinion polls <laughs> rather than real votes. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll take seven, eight, nine, ten mandates in a row for an opinion poll yeah. any day of the week. Anyway, yeah. I mentioned um, Project Fear 2, and it took me back to the 2014 independence referendum. And the Yes campaign, I think, was characterised by one thing. It was the absolute determination to answer every question to provide as much information as possible to the people of Scotland. And we did this in the, in the face of the constant refrain from unionism that there wasn't enough information. Uh, even when detailed answers to every question were tripping off people's lips, still we were asked for yeah. more. Mm -hmm. And we tried to ensure the answers we gave, the future shape of the Scottish state, the policy for an independent Scotland were to the best of our ability in the best interests <coughs> of the people of Scotland and those in the rest of the UK. I know it was that clearer, actually, than in our proposals for what was then a, a formal shared currency and our determination to service a negotiated share of the UK's national debt. Both plans actually designed to protect sterling and stop the rest of the UK falling victim to a technical default on its debt obligations. Mm -hmm. And in order to provide that certainty, that clarity, that detail, we drew, if not exclusively, certainly very heavily on the 670-page Scotland's Future White Paper. But we need to recognise unionism behaved the way unionism behaved and campaign differently and smarter this time. The first thing to recognise is, no matter how detailed and precise our answers were, Unionism continued and will continue to ask the same questions over and over and over again to give the impression there are no answers. It was false then, it's false now. Uh, secondly, we need to recognise unionism acted and continues to act in an irrational way. So next time, next year, whatever policy decisions are finally determined to be best for Scotland, they must not only be technically robust, they must be politically bomb-proof as well which means no Indyref 2 policy area can ever be held hostage by a Westminster veto. Yeah, yeah. And thirdly, of course, while we must answer every question which the public put to us, we should make our fundamental case on principle and not detail, and that's why the first three papers uh, published by the Scottish Government are first class. Mm -hmm. A mix of democratic principle and a vivid picture of what Scotland could be is hopeful, upbeat, and takes yes campaigners 
away from the miserable drudge of unionist whittabootery that we saw in spades today, which so characterised the 2014 referendum. And one final thought at this point. We know how successful Scotland can be. Isn't it time unionism was finally challenged? Beyond Brexit, is this really as good as it gets? The first, though, first thing we have to do is to, to deliver Scottish independence and second, in many ways, more importantly, describe the kind of <coughs> Scotland we seek. Now, we've laid out the mechanism by which we'll deliver it. We've gone to the Supreme Court to test the, test the legality of the referendum and we've a wonderful fallback position that the next West, Westminster election will be a de facto referendum, meaning the Scottish people's voice will be heard one way or another. But to answer that second question, what sort of Scotland will we deliver? Well, the answer to that is actually implicit in the motion. Our critique of the botched experimental Tufton Street economics which crashed the economy in the mini-budget is stark, and our demands for action to help those most in need is clear. Yeah. But let me end by answering the question, what sort of Scotland do we seek in a slightly more succinct way? The Scotland we will deliver will be the one the people of Scotland want and choose. Because it's with independence and only with independence that Scotland will always get the government and the policies it votes for. There were a couple of other little gems from the Opposition Day debate that are definitely worth hearing. First of all, Kirsty Blackman, who had an excellent little uh, speech called Hold My Beer. Let's listen to that now. We've had another 12 years of Conservative government that Scotland hasn't voted for. I honestly thought that it couldn't get more damaging, we couldn't have a more damaging government, a more damaging Prime Minister than that which we experienced during the Margaret Thatcher era. Then David Cameron said, hold my beer, <laughs> and had the Brexit referendum. Mm -hmm. Then the member for Maidenhead said, hold my beer, demonised immigrants and put in motion the hardest possible Brexit. Then the member for Uxbridge said, hold my beer, and destroyed what little faith the public had left in politicians being honest. Then the member for South West Norfolk said, hold my beer, and crashed the economy. If the current Prime Minister asks you to hold his drink, I recommend running a mile. Stephen Bonner, who's the MP for Coatbridge, Christon and Bells Hill, came up with another little gem, almost a throwaway before he started his speech. But it was a great little clip. It went viral on our TikTok and our YouTube, so here it is. Before I begin, can I just take the opportunity to remind the House that um, no asylum seeker raided or looted pension funds, and no asylum seeker, no asylum seeker has used fire and rehire tactics to sack an entire workforce, and no asylum seeker has tanked the economy, and no asylum seeker is illegal. There's always a balance to be struck between vision of what life's going to be like in an independent Scotland, which is very important. If we don't have a vision of where we're going, why would we expect anybody to follow us there? But also engagement, engaging people in the process of building that new Scotland. When it comes down to the detail, of course, that is just fertile ground for the unionists to start asking for more and more and more information. So you disappear down this rabbit hole. Most of that information needs to be designed collectively as we go forward. Not every T crossed and every I dotted before we even get there. And probably worth reminding ourselves that the sum total of the information before the Brexit vote was a slogan on the side of a bus. But it was refreshing, though, to hear so much positive vision from our MPs. And I thought that Deirdre Brock had a particularly interesting take on it. Deirdre's originally from Australia, so she comes from a country that has already achieved its independence. That gives her an interesting perspective. Deirdre Brock. Uh, we spend a lot of time in this place talking about the many faults of Westminster governments and the constitutional arrangements that we and so many of our constituents uh, object to. Uh, indeed, I'll be touching on some of those a little later myself. But I wanted to start by talking about the possibilities, the opportunities we can explore in an independent Scotland. It's the possibilities suggested by a fully independent Scotland I find so exciting. Not something to be viewed with dread, but welcomed as a new start, away from the crumbling, ultra-conservative with the small sea ways of this place. 
Imagine our small nation not strapped to the disintegrating dreams of an imperial past, but as a country making its own way in the world, deciding what best need, suits the needs of its people and being able to act on that, looking outwards to the international community and playing its part in world affairs. Uh, today, for example, the Scottish Government published its findings <coughs> from interviews on establishing a feminist approach to foreign policy. Here, here. This approach to international affairs doesn't only seek to improve women's material positions around the world, but embraces a reorientation of foreign policy based upon cosmopolitan ideals of justice, peace and pragmatic security. With reserved matters returned to us and the powers of a normal, independent country at our disposal, we'd be able to fully pursue innovative new ideas and build on our reputation as a trusted and valued global citizen. We'd no longer be held back by the dead hand of this place clamping down on change, held back by successive governments we haven't voted for, free from being at the mercy of Westminster government decisions made so often against our best interests by a government full of ministers that just don't get Scotland, its needs or its people. Freed from investment made without our say-so in obscenities such as Trident, successive disastrous MOD decisions on weapons that waste billions, and nuclear power with its toxic legacy. And shifting to life-affirming investments in our people, our renewables potential, our health and education systems, our social security, our infrastructure, our research and development, and so much more. Now, the country I grew up in, Madam Deputy Speaker, has flourished since it threw off the influences of Mother Britain, for the most part, although there is still unfinished business there, of course, and it hasn't looked back. If you asked Australians now if they wanted to creep back to the comfort of the UK's arms, they would laugh at you, because nothing beats being free to make your own decisions for yourself, to suit your own needs. That's as true for countries as it is for individuals, and it goes for the many countries that have extracted themselves from Westminster's grip. And you know what, Madam Deputy Speaker, I don't recall any of them being incapable of deciding what currency they'd use to the point where it stopped them from wanting independence. Yes. I for giving way. I think she might have actually answered my question. I was going to ask her, is she aware of any nation that has become independent from the UK that has gone back? Yeah. No, indeed. And I think uh, many of the arguments around this are just completely fatuous in my view. Um, now, the Tories seem to have forgotten the promises made during the last independence referendum to greatly strengthen devolution and Scotland's powers, but many of us in Scotland do not. They were as hollow as the promises made to the fishing communities before the EU referendum. We, like them, have been badly let down. Now, I do understand some of the fears we've heard expressed today, even from honourable members from other parties here today, about. Scotland leaving the Union and regaining its independence, but surely even they would welcome the example of a good neighbour to raise all our standards. We could set an example to the world on how we do these things. And shouldn't we all be aiming to move away from the bad examples of failed states, of their disempowered parliaments? No more centralising of powers in the hands of a very few government ministers without parliamentary say-so and without the say-so of the people of Scotland. I mean, I've spoken before of the bizarre for, hankering for uniformity across these islands being seemingly at odds with traditional Tory thinking. I thought that lot were, that lot were all for rugged individualism. But I guess that sort of in centralising instinct is the kind of thinking you might expect from a team that crushes dissent, removes entirely or sidelines what's left of its talent, and somehow still gaslights the public into thinking the ship of government just sails on serenely. The UK Internal Market Act, Madam Deputy Speaker, for example, pushed through this place with indecent haste and sinking its claws into devolved responsibilities, despite objections from devolved parliaments, made it clear this government seeks to bring Scotland's standards down rather than improve English standards. That is a poverty of ambition that should haunt England for decades, but it shouldn't be allowed to hold back the rest of us. 
But under the myth of removing barriers to trade, the UKIM Act ignored those objections and sought to force Scotland and, of course, Wales into a lockstep union of diminishing standards and lessening protections, with a government determined to rip away what it calls red tape and the rest of us calls sensible precautions. That was not respectful co-decision making. It's interesting to hear the minister getting a little bit irate about these points. This was not, despite all the many ministerial assurances otherwise, introduced with the intention of aiming for higher standards. Madam Deputy Speaker, I have sat in this place time and again been told legislation that appeared completely disadvantageous to Scotland's interests in a, uh, wasn't in fact so and that we should simply trust in ministers' good intentions. And I have to say, I didn't believe them, Madam De Deputy Speaker, and I was right not to. After Brexit removed us from the protections offered us by the EU, this government began chipping away at even the limited powers of devolution. The UKIM Act, amongst others, many others, have changed our constitutional arrangements without asking the people for their approval on a referendum. Although it has to be said they withheld their approval in the last Scottish parliament, uh, parliamentary elections, where once again the Tories lost. Now, surely higher standards should be the goal, not lower. That is what an independent Scotland could take back control of once again, in consultation upon our return to the EU with our sister countries. Back to respecting higher standards, protecting consumers, the environment, brand reputations, our farming and fishing communities, the business and the investment sectors, our exporters and protecting jobs. After my PMQ today, uh, another area we would be able to look at once independent could be the influence of organisations with opaque funding sources that have wormed their way into our politics. We've seen the recent spectacular crash of libertarian ultra-right-wing ideas espoused by some of those organisations to gullible politicians just a few weeks ago. For a long time, UK politics has been dominated by a variety of so-called think tanks set up as a front that are opaquely funded and refuse to declare their financial sources. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's suspected uh, much of their funding could come from individuals and organisations based overseas, but it's very difficult to prove. Some may have been involved in the Cambridge Analytica scandal that yeah. may have contributed to the success of the Vote Leave campaign in the EU referendum. Yeah. These are the kind of shadowy organisations we could have the powers to take a get action against in an independent Scotland. Yeah, Not yeah. to stop their voices, the principle of free speech is something I'd like to think that we can all agree on in this place, but to make clear to the public their funding sources and the possible vested interests at play so the Scottish public is fully informed and not played for fools. But to ensure this, of course, we'd need a genuinely independent body to, regu to regulate elections. In February, the election, uh, Electoral Commission took what was a highly unusual step of writing a public letter to the Tory government to say that the provisions in the elections bill were inconsistent with the role that an independent electoral commission plays in a healthy democracy. The elections bill, you might recall, sailed through this place regardless. That is extremely worrying, contrary to international norms, and I think we would do much better. We could take a much larger role in addressing the climate crisis and in fully exploiting our, potential, our renewables potential. Clearly, the ex existential threat of the climate emergency lies low on the new Prime Minister's list of priorities. Even now, in the year the UK hands over the COP presidency, he demotes both the climate minister and the COP26 president from the Cabinet. In the meantime, new oil and gas licences are being issued, even as the government must now come up with a new net-zero strategy by March after the High Court ruled its previous plan was unlawful. Meanwhile, the equivalent of almost 100 per cent of Scotland's gross electricity consumption is now generated from renewable sources. And yet we remain locked in an energy market in which the price of electricity is not tied to the price of gas. Our contribution to the international fight against climate change gives a further glimpse of what might be possible with independence. That's true not just in terms of our own actions to cut emissions at home, but also in the proactive role in convening efforts on the world stage. Many of the worst consequences of the climate crisis are being felt in some of the poorest regions of the world by people least responsible for its causes. It is very pleasing then that young people and women from countries in the Global South are being given the op opportunity to attend COP27 in Egypt as part of Scottish Government funded programs. Yeah, yeah. 
Scotland was among the first nations to put fairness and justice at the heart of our international climate action. The Scottish Government's trebled the Climate Justice Fund to £36 million, including a financial commitment of £2 million to address loss and damage, the first country in the world to do so. That will help to meet the costs that would otherwise be borne by island nations and low-lying developing states. The SNP uh, Scottish Government also led an international co coalition resulting in the Edinburgh Declaration, urging increased action to tackle biodiversity loss. It now has 244 signatories from governments, cities and local authorities representing every continent. That ambition, innovation and pursuit of justice which have characterised Scotland's climate policy and international engagement just shows you the potential and hope that independence offers us. I mean, that's what this place finds so hard to crush in all of us who have that dream of a better Scotland. Hope. All we lack now is that final crucial faith in ourselves and our abilities to get there. I so look forward to shaking the dust of this place off our shoes and embarking on that fresh new path with that wealth of talented people, resources, rich history and culture behind us, granting us fair winds and grasping those opportunities that await us very soon. Here. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. Another favourite speaker of mine, um, Tommy Shepherd, always articulate, always interesting, and the Opposition Day debate was no exception. Thank you, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker. I, I want to start with the Red Wall Tories. Our uh, absent friends in the North are surely on a sticky wicket. For years, in cases decades, they have burrowed away in one solid Labour fiefdoms, angry at what was happening to their communities. They created a false narrative that these problems were the result of wanton neglect by their political opponents, rather than the inevitable consequence of being on the periphery of a capitalist economy which is over-centralised and under-regulated. Yeah. But they broke through in 2019, and they came here, tribunes of the people, champions <laughs> of their communities, they came to this palace to press their case, and they ended up supporting a government of spivs and millionaires that is turbocharging the very problems they complain about in the first place. Yeah. Well, their tenure will soon be coming to an end. But, Mr Deputy Speaker, if I was living in those working-class communities, I would be equally despondent yeah. at the alternative on offer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because today's Labour Party must surely, as a government in waiting, have the least ambition it has ever had in its 122-year history. A party that says hardly anything about how it wants to change things. It is terrified of suggesting that the wealthiest in our community should pay more tax. Terrified of supporting the trade unions that founded it, founded it in their struggle for a living wage. Committed to expanding dangerous and expensive nuclear energy. And most of all, committed now to a future United Kingdom remaining isolated from the European mainstream. What a choice. Now, you may wonder, Mr Deputy Speaker, of the relevance of that for Scottish independence. Well, it is quite simple, because people in my constituency and elsewhere in Scotland look at this duopoly, this oscillation about a mean point of inequality that never seeks to fundamentally change it, and they ask themselves, is this the best that can be done? And increasingly, people say, no, we can do better than this. And we can do better than this if we take the power to ourselves to become an independent country. And I say to those who are on the other side of this debate, if you understand nothing else, understand this. The debate about contemporary Scottish independence is not a debate about identity. It is a debate about political power about having the agency to change the world around us and to play our part in a world aiming to be a better place. That is why we argue the case for Scottish independence. And we believe in changing that world. It is a new vision of how things could be. A world, a society where 
the barometer of success is measured by the well-being of the people rather than the profits of city corporations, where we have growth in our economy to afford human leisure rather than human exploitation, and most of all, where our natural resources are marshalled into a sustainable future for our country and for the world. That is what we aspire to. And yet, when you listen to our detractors, you would think it was far from that. And I congratulate the Shadow Secretary of State for Scotland on the public launch today of Project Fear 2.0. Because if we are to take him at his word, then a Scottish Government on day one of independence would have five times, said five times the problem that this Government currently has to deal with in terms of an economic deficit. And a currency would, at the point of introduction, crashed by 30 per cent. Oh my God, well, who would want to even consider such a scenario? But of course, these things are not facts. They are not evidence. They are conjecture and supposition. And he makes his case, and in the flurry of the campaign rhetoric, he makes it very well. But that doesn't make it true. And to take the the, uh, the Jairs figures as one example, which he placed a lot of emphasis on, he may be interested to know that the Institute for Fiscal Studies, no less, not a, not a fan of independence, says that by next year the structural deficit in the Scottish economy will be the same, more or less, as the structural deficit in the UK economy as a whole. Not a factor of five more. But of course, the most important thing about the Jairs figures is that they are not a statement of account of Scotland as an independent nation. They are a statement of what a regional economy looks like within the United Kingdom. Any sensible person would look at that structural deficit in those figures and take that as evidence against the Union, not in favour of it. And it's because we can do so much better that we aspire for independence. And it is, as others have remarked, it is just unbelievable, is it not, that a country like Scotland, which is blessed with enormous resources of renewable energy, with a talented and skilled workforce, with a thriving tourism and hospitality and cultural sector, leading the world in new technologies from biosciences to gaming, uh, and, and, and also with our world-class academia. It is, it is strange, is it not, that a country with all that going for it can be described as a basket case when it comes to self-government and people suggest it cannot possibly afford it. Well, of course it can. Mr Deputy Speaker, this debate is called Scottish independence and Scottish economy for a reason. And that is because we know and we understand that we will not get a majority of people in Scotland to vote to become a self-governing country if we cannot argue that that will make things materially better for them and their communities in the medium to long run. And we know that that is the case. We have to connect those together. I had a whole list here of things I was going to go through which actually show how independence can make things better. I don't have time to do them all, so I will select a few. And these are the arguments and themes that are now being published in these Scottish government documents that the motion refers to. I would advise colleagues to take the time and read some of them. And they are part of an ongoing debate that points out the consequences of independence on ordinary people and their livelihoods. Take, for example, and I think it's apposite because today is the day where the Trade Union Congress is petitioning and lobbying <coughs> this Parliament. Take, for example, fair rights at work. Yeah, yeah. A Scottish, an independent Scottish Government will make sure that there is a living wage for people in their place of work, that this disgusting this disgusting uh, separation where young people can be exploited at extremely low wages is removed and people are paid that wage from the point at which they enter the workforce and that the trade union legislation is repealed and people have the right to organise. And we know we want to do that because we know that if the balance in the workplace changes and that becomes fairer, all the evidence shows that leads to a more prosperous and a more equal economy. That is why we want to do it and we cannot do it without the powers that come from independence. Yeah, yeah. If we take taxation policy, the Scottish Government does have the power at the margins to vary income tax, but no government without any control whatsoever over the movement of labour or capital can possibly change the taxation system in any meaningful way. We would want to see 
those with the broader shoulders make their fair contribution. We want to see a much more progressive situation. We want to see business taxes where small and medium-sized enterprises are supported and helped to thrive, but at the same time it is understood that the opportunity to make money comes with the obligation to put something back into the social infrastructure and the communities that enabled you to do so in the first place. This we cannot do without the powers of independence. Energy, Mr Deputy Speaker, which has been talked about a lot here. Why on earth is it in a country which is self-sufficient in renewable energy that people this winter cannot afford to pay their electricity bills? It is a scandal beyond recognition. And what we need to do is we need to scrap off-chain. We need to break this link between yeah. electricity prices yeah. and Putin's gas supply prices. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that if we have a country capable of generating 100% renewable energy from the wind and the water, then the benefits go to the people that live there and not to the global corporations. This we cannot do without the powers of independence. But that is why we ask we ask people in Scotland to consider the alternatives. We don't need to have this duopoly of despair that is being offered in the United Kingdom. We can take matters into our own hands and create a new and a better country. And the final point, the final subject is this, Mr Deputy Speaker. Who gets to choose on this matter? That is the fundamental question of political principle which this chamber has to confront as well as any others, because the Secretary of State in his opening remarks, made much, it was as if the, the, you know, the record is broken, made much of a campaign that's now nearly 10 years ago and a result that happened in 2014 when things were remarkably different from what they are now. It might have been that 2014 referendum on Scottish independence had settled the matter. It might have been that people said, that's fine, we accept that and move on. It wasn't us who didn't accept it. It was the people of Scotland who put us here to prosecute this case. And it is their right, and only their right, to reconsider that matter at a time of their choosing. And that is why, last year, they elected, ten years after the day they did it the first time round, they elected a Scottish Parliament with more members, more members committed to independence than there was in 2011. And that mandate has been disrespected and refused by this government, and that is why we are now arguing in the Supreme Court. And it doesn't play well in Scotland, because every time you deny the voice of the people, you only fuel their ambition to make it louder. Yeah. Yeah. Another articulate and passionate contribution came from Anam Kaiser, who's the MP for Airdrian Shots. I'm going to play a couple of clips from her speech. The first where she takes aim and, as they say, does not miss and hit the wall. Independence is not about the SNP or Nicola Sturgeon. It's about self-determination for the people of Scotland. From Covid contract scandals to making their rich mates lords, there is so much that is broken about the Westminster and how this place protects the rich. This year, Shell has paid zero windfall tax in the UK, despite making record global profits of nearly £26 billion. BP made £7.1 billion between July and September, more than double its profits for the same period last year. And this is at the same time that I have constituents who are struggling to heat food that they're getting from food banks. So not only can they no longer afford to buy food, they have to eat food cold because using microwaves, ovens or stoves is simply too expensive. This isn't a national disgrace. It's immoral, it's evil and it's corporate greed backed by Downing Street. Yeah, yeah. They takes more <coughs> and more for themselves and lines their own pockets and couldn't care less about the ordinary person. Now, Mr Deputy Speaker, this year in the, Tory, well, in the multiple Tory leadership elections, actually, <laughs> and who knows, we might have some more, the Tory candidates completely relinquished the fact that they were literally in government 
So they were making the decisions. They sat at the Cabinet table and they've sat there for years. That lot have had 12 years in Downing Street. They've spent the last decade systematically dismantling the social security system and othering some of the most vulnerable in our communities. And it's equally hard to disagree with this next clip from Annam's speech. The UK economy and the financial mismanagement from Westminster is simply not working for Scotland. The Tories are delivering low productivity, stagnant wages, high inequality and high poverty rates. And we could use the full powers of independence to build an inclusive, fair, well-being economy that works for everyone in Scotland. And with independence, we can develop an immigration policy that, which aligns with the values of the people of Scotland. Westminster is broken, and this isn't limited to the Tories. The, we, the Labour Party, so my grandfather, my immigrant grandfather, always voted for the Labour Party. Yet recently, we heard from their leader say that there's little difference, essentially, on immigration between right. them two. That is shameful. That's not something to be proud of. Yep. It's no. disgrace. And I am so proud of the rejection from these benches of the hostile, xenophobic, refugee and anti-immigrant policies from that side of the House. And there are already stark differences of asylum policy between both governments. So the Tory government was the same people who are literally fleeing war and persecution to Rwanda, whilst the Scottish government's new Scots refugee integration strategy is pushing a trauma-informed approach to ensure that the voice of those seeking asylum are placed at the heart of policy. Mr Deputy Speaker, no human being is illegal. And to quote Warsenshire, you have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. Yep. Very powerful stuff from Anam Kaiser there. Now on to our final clip. And this, I thought, was the best speech in the whole Opposition Day debate. It was delivered by Pete Wishart. Pete can be a bit of a controversial figure. There are certainly some lines he takes that I don't personally agree with. But every now and again, he comes away with such a stunner of a speech that I just have to play this one in full. It is long, but I think you're going to enjoy it. I want to see if we can maybe do something different in this particular debate today, because these debates are always characterised by real polarisation. On one side, of course, we've got people who are passionate the unionists who want to put the case. And of course, we here want to put the case for the independent Scotland. So I'm going to see if there's any place where we can agree, where we can maybe even set a set of principles where we can engage in this debate based on something that's approaching a consensus around the language. Now, I might not be successful, Mr Deputy Speaker, but I'm going to give it my best shot and just see how far we get with this. So I'm going to propose a few assertions just to see if the House will agree to them. And the first one I'm going to say is that Scotland would be a, a successful independent country. Surely all of us could agree to that thing. Scotland would be a successful independent country. I'm not so sure about the Labour front base because I put that to the honourable gentleman and he wasn't so sure. But even the most <coughs> rabid, passionate Tory unionists surely wouldn't try to assert that the Scottish people, with all their history of invention, with all our history of creation, of all our in history of innovation imagination, would somehow uniquely fail amongst all the peoples in the world who have secured independence, they would uniquely fail in making a success of our independence. So can we all agree Scotland would be a successful independent yeah. country? Yeah. Yeah, of course it would. I, I, I agree with you, honourable gentleman. I'm, I'm delighted he's given away so early. This debate isn't about that. This debate is about the broken proposition that you are putting as a prospectus for that independent Scotland. And that's what we have demonstrated has holes in it. It's up to you to make that proposition, not us. And I will respond to that challenge and thank the Honourable Gentleman because I think I heard them say that Scotland would be a successful independent country. I think that's what he was saying. So what, what I've got, what I've got, well, yeah, okay, right, I want to hear the Honourable Gentleman say that too. If, if you're looking for just that quote and to edit that out for video clip purposes, then I'm happy to oblige. But, <laughs> Just as, just, as Scotland, just as an independent Scotland or a separate Scotland could possibly succeed, 
would he also argue, argue that an independent England or an independent Wales or an independent Northern Ireland would, would succeed as well, but not nearly as much as a United Kingdom? Yes, this is, this is progress, Mr Deputy Speaker, and, and I now feel I'm on the right sort of track with this, because I think what we're getting across the House is the agreement to the assertion that Scotland would be a successful independent country. I have no doubts whatsoever that England, without Scotland's contribution to, to, through its resources, would be equally successful as an independent nation. I believe that somehow they would just about muddle through without our support intervention. And, yeah, I hope they're going to get a clean sweep here now with the Liberals to agree to this. And I'm counting on the Honourable Gentleman to do that. I hate to disappoint you, Honourable Gentleman, but if you took a straw poll amongst the pregnant mothers in Caithness who now have to travel over 100 miles to give birth in Inverness, and this has happened on the SNP's watch, he would get a pretty dusty answer. You see, I was, I was going so well, Mr Deputy Speaker. I had the Conservatives agree to that. I think I had the Labour Party agree to it. But the Liberals just could not bring themselves to agree with the proposition that an independent Scotland would be a successful independent nation. It's, it's unfortunate. I think we've had the Liberals, if that's okay with Honourable Lady. I think we're, we're, we'll do all right. I'll come back to her, because I've got other assertions, I've got other assertions to make. Now I think we've all agreed that, other than the Liberal Democrats. Let's try another one. With all, with all our resources, with all our resources, and Mr Deputy Speaker, I'm referring when I speak about all our resources, let's include the good proportion of nearly all of Europe's oil and gas reserves, the greatest potential for renewable energy that exists in Europe, vast fisheries, a water supply that is the envy in the world that Scotland has what it takes to be an independent country. Could we all agree to that? Here, here. Right, yes, I'll, let's see if she'll agree. To, Scotland has what it takes to be an independent country. Thank you very much. I thank the Honourable Member for giving way, but can just perhaps point out that he misinterprets what all of us think. None of us have ever said that Scotland couldn't be independent, but that the people of Scotland, when given the choice, have voted no because they feel their future is better within the United Kingdom. Again, I think that's a bit, can I just say that's just a little bit more encouraging because I, I think we're moving towards the assertion that Scotland would be a successful and that Scotland has more than what it takes to be in a Perhaps we could even suggest, I'll try this one, just throw this one just a little bit, a wee bit further on this theme. Perhaps we could even suggest that Scotland is perhaps the best resourced country that has ever considered becoming an independent country. I think, I think that's pretty incontrovertible. No country is better endowed to be an independent nation than when we look around at Scotland, whether it's oil and gas reserves, whether it's fisheries, whether it's a potential renewable energy, no Scotland, no country other than Scotland is better prepared to be, can we agree on that? I'm looking for the Honourable General to agree on that. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more with the Honourable Lady who said nobody would disagree with his assertion other than the, the fact that we, we, the, the people of Scotland have repeatedly, or, or, or have, when it counted, voted to stay in the United Kingdom. Being in the United Kingdom is better. But on the subject of fisheries, one of, one of, look, look, let, me, let us all agree, Scotland's great. Scotland's fantastic. Scotland within the United Kingdom is even better. Even better, but, yes. But will he, will he confirm that an independent Scotland under the SNP's proposals, when he talks about fisheries, would be to rejoin the EU and therefore rejoin the common fisheries policy? So, I'm so grateful to the Honourable Gentleman for raising the EU because what I want to say now, and, I, and I, I'm sort of suspecting that I'm not going to get the same range of agreement around the House when it comes to this particular session. But what I'm going to do, let's see if we can agree to this one. That the only way for Scotland to be a member of the European Union is to become an independent nation. Yeah. Can we all agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I've seen a couple of no's, mainly again from the Liberal Democrats, who I have to say, Mr Deputy Speaker, I'm very, very disappointed when it comes to this. I thought I would have had a more encouraging response from our Liberal Democrats. This is not what I want to do. I, I thought I was going to stand up here today and I was going to find agreement across the House. And I have to say, where I thought I was making a bit of progress with that, it's sort of disappearing a little bit. But I'll try once again, Mr Deputy Speaker, to see if I can do it. I mean, all, I want, all I want is for everybody to agree that the only way, the only way 
that Scotland could be a member of the European Union is through being independent. So we know that because they're all parties of Brexit now. They, they all want to make Brexit work. Now, I don't know how you do that. I don't even know if it's possible to make Brexit work. I think it's almost designed not to work because it's, it's not any sort of economic strategy. It is an ideological mission. And I'm not entirely sure that you could make an ideological mission like Brexit works, but they want to make it work. So we're left with a situation that the only way, and I don't see how this is uncontroversial, the only way that we could make Scotland a member of the European Union is, is, a, is, is an independent nation. And we know the Scottish people want that. We know that because that's what they voted for. We're going on about democracy here. The Scottish people voted with the overwhelming majority to remain in the European Union. And every single subsequent poll since then has shown that the Scottish people want to rejoin the European Union. So let's all agree. Let's all, no, I've given it to the Honourable Lady before. Let's all agree that the only way to do this is in the European, a member of the European Union. I'll try another one. I'll try another one. We'll just see. And this one's probably, this one's probably not going to get there with my colleagues, but I'll see what we can do. The only, the only way for Scotland to get the government that, that always votes for is as an independent nation. Can we, can we agree with that? The only way we'll always get the government we vote for is an independent. Now, occasionally, in the past, in my time as an MP, the, gov the government. Well, he says this makes sense. Well, when I was elected in 2001, Scotland voted for Labour. It got the government that it wants. But since 2010, Scotland has never had the government that it's voted for. So, what I'm saying, and it's, again, it's uncontroversial. Scott, the only way for Scotland to get the government that it always votes for is as an independent na nation. Yeah, now, yeah. I thought we might have a little bit of difficulty with that one, but it's not too bad. So I'm a bit more encouraged, so I'll, I'll see how much more we could get out of this thing. Could we all maybe agree that when we look around the rest of Europe and my honourable friend always refers to Ireland, and he's, he's right to do so because it's a great example. But when we look around the rest of Europe, and we look at nations such as I don't know, Ireland, Iceland, Finland, Norway, Denmark, nations which are roughly the same size as Scotland, five million to eight million people, and they're all much more successful than Scotland. They're all powering ahead. They're, they've got economic growth. They've got GDP, which is something we can only envy. Can we all agree? that there's something about the constitutional arrangements of Scotland that doesn't let us prosper the way that our neighbours do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No? No? He says no? <coughs> yes, I'll give it to makes absolutely fantastic point. He's just listed some nations there that are in the top ten of the UN Human Development Index. Yet here we are uh, as Scots MPs in the UK. The UK is in number <coughs> 18, and we're told that we're a poor part of number 18. Those who've left, such as Ireland, are ten places higher. Iceland, Norway, two and three. Of the countries he's mentioned. He makes the case brilliantly. For someone who gentleman who takes these issues very seriously, and I know that, but I'm a bit encouraged with all that. Here's one that they'll definitely agree to, and I'm pretty certain of this when it comes to this, because I think we have to be honest about certain things. I think we have to acknowledge that there will obviously be difficulties too. I mean, I think independence will be positive for Scotland on being in charge of road affairs. I think we could be an incredible nation, just like our, our near neighbours. But let's, let's see if they'll agree with us so much. I'm almost certain that we. That that they would, that at the starting point of Scottish independence, there will be issues because of the deficit that we have as part of the United Kingdom. Yep. Yep. You can all agree with that. I mean, like, there's no, no objection from the Conservative benches with that one. So, but could we also then agree that the way to resolve this deficit, as it's so called and has been demonstrated by colleagues, is to remove the conditions that create it? Should we agree to that? So, what we actually want to yes. do then is to have the full range of economic powers which will allow us to properly address this, and that we remove ourselves from the very institutions that give us this deficit to be part of the United Kingdom. Can we agree to that? Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing silence, but like, I don't think they're agreeing to it. I think they're just humouring me now, Madam Deputy Speaker. Right, last time to Donald Trump. Not. I'm grateful for the honourable gentleman for giving way to seek clarification on what he's actually asking. Is he actually asking that to remove the deficit that Scotland currently has compared to the rest of the United Kingdom, by, by removing Scotland from the United Kingdom, that deficit no longer exists? Is that what he's, he's asking? 
what I'm doing is maybe putting the other way around for the honourable gentleman. It might be easier for him to comprehend and understand. We have this notional deficit as part of the United Kingdom. As part of, and I think we all agreed that all these other nations are powering ahead of us. But we are not. We, we've, we've got, according to the honourable gentleman, a deficit, which apparently means we can't be independent. But we've got that deficit because we're part of the United Kingdom. Now, what strikes me as the logical course of action when it comes to this is to extricate ourselves from the conditions which have given us this deficit. And that would therefore mean leaving the United Kingdom ensuring that we get the full suite of economic powers to deal with it. And we've all agreed, I think we've all agreed, that we as a people are resourceful enough to make a success of our independence. And I think we've also agreed that Scotland, with its abundant natural resources, has what it takes to be an independent country. So what is it? What's happening? What's happening that we have, according to Honourable Gentleman and the Honourable Gentleman there, this deficit? How, how when we've got the skills, we've got the history of inventions, we've got creativity, we've got universities in the top 100, we've got oil and gas, we've got fisheries, we've got the best potential for renewables in Europe. Why have we got a deficit? Now, I don't know, it's, it's maybe, just, maybe I'm just not getting it, but I seem to believe and sense that it's to do with the constitutional arrangements that we find ourselves in. Now, I don't think I did too badly with all that. I think we got rough agreement yeah, yeah. on a lot. So, like, if we park all of this, and please, I never want to hear anybody suggest ever again that our nation, the people of Scotland, are somehow too wee, poor and stupid to make a success of it. Never again. Right, they're saying our words. Right, what I'll say to the Honourable Gentleman, right? OK, here's, here's, here's my... Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm, hearing, I'm, I'm hearing him clearly. What I'll say to the Honourable Gentleman, I will make sure... I will make sure that no one in the Scottish National Party utters it again. Can he do the same for his party and he perhaps for the same as that? Let's never hear again a suggestion that'll be the case. But anyway, we have agreed, we have agreed that there's a ground, I think, that was useful. That was a useful kick around. So if we've agreed that all these things, what do we do now? How do we have the debate? about going forward, because we have to have this debate. I know people have knocked about opinionable figures, but when we're at 50-50 in the polls, it has to be resolved. It's, it's intolerable that it isn't resolved. And we cannot continue with a future like this. We have to resolve this as an issue. And I know everybody says 2014 we had a referendum. Yes, we had a referendum. But like Scotland in 2022 is an almost different country entirely from 2014. The United Kingdom is unrecognisable from 2014. We have consistently and continually elected governments with a, with a commitment to hold a referendum and to move towards independence. We're all here as representatives of that very mission. So we have to resolve this. So my last plea when it comes to all of these things is demonstrate, let's all demonstrate to the Scottish people that we're not some sort of hostage within the United Kingdom, that we are the equal partner that everybody talks about, that was described so eloquently du during the last independence referendum, during the campaign, campaign, that we were to lead Scotland, as my right honourable friend said. These were all these things. So let's, let's test this. Let's have this debate, because all the pillars of the Better Together campaign, that the things that sustain this tent that they put under, the tent that accommodated both Labour, both Tories, which was so catastrophic for the Labour Party, the fact that the Honourable Gentleman is the only member of the Labour Party here, dreadful for them, a terrible experience for them. <laughs> but all those central pillars are gone, and it's collapsed. The case for staying in their union is gone, and it's gone particularly when we observe the crisis and chaos of the last few weeks. Scotland can't put up with this anymore. We, we can't be governed by incompetence who you, drive us to the very abyss of a pension crisis. We can't go on like this. So the last thing, can we all agree we must have a referendum to settle this? So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed it. Pete Wishart on fine form there. So this has been a bit different from our normal bits and pieces. Still so much going on that we can barely cram it all in. Uh, we'll probably end up throwing in some bonus Tuesdays as we go through December and January. The next few weeks we're going to have a really interesting discussion with uh, Scottish CND's Bill Ramsey, giving us an update on the Ukraine situation in relation to nuclear power points in war zones. A very interesting topic, that, and very quite a scary topic as well. 
Um, following that, we've got a great discussion with Jerry Hassan, writer and academic who's got a new book out. Uh, the week after that, we drop in on a meeting that the Radical Independence Campaign and Our Republic had, planning to mark the King's coronation in some way. Intriguing. We'll also try and squeeze in at least one court case special and the First Minister's press conference. So plenty going on. New episode every Friday. And if you drop into our Indie Live Extra YouTube channel, you'll find all sorts of extra video goodies that go along with our podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye now. You've been listening to Indie Jigsaw Bits and Pieces. I'm a piece of